So in about a month from now, we'll celebrate the 30th anniversary of something we take for granted today. On December 3rd, 1992, a young engineer named Neil Packworth used his computer to send the first text message ever. It was Merry Christmas and sent to an Orbital 901 mobile phone as an early test of the technology. And what a huge step forward. I'm dating myself here, but in the early 90s, the best we could do was page someone, run to a phone booth, insert coins, and make the call. Now you just open up your smartphone, and there's that message from your loved one. Now it's even more amazing that we can open up our Bibles or Bible apps, whatever you guys use these days, um, and read messages from the God of the universe. And that's what we bring here every week. There's a message from God as we open up the word. But we can take that for granted as well. We may skim it instead of peruse it. We're not awakened by stern warnings or comforted by its great promises. What's the use of a message that's sent if not read? Now, we don't want to make the same mistake as we continue in Malachi. As a review, there are six oracles that make up the majority of the book. We covered three thus far. In each, the Lord has patiently dealt with Israel, confronting them and answering their questions. And let's take a look at the fourth oracle, which starts with God's people questioning him. And so I'm going to read now Malachi 2, 17. Chapter 3, verse 6. If you're using your pew Bible, you'll find it in page 674. So Malachi 2, 17, that's the last verse of that chapter. So chapter 3, verse 6. You have wearied the Lord with your words, yet you say, in what way have we wearied him? In that you say... Everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or, where is the God of justice? Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver, that they may offer to the Lord an offering in righteousness. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasant to the Lord as in the days of old, as in former years. And I will come near you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against Sorcerers, against adulterers, against perjurers, against those who exploit wage earners and widows and orphans, and against those who turn away an alien, because they do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. For I am the Lord, I do not change. Therefore you are not consumed, O son of Jacob. So we begin the oracle with the back and forth in the last verse of chapter 2. It can be divided into three parts, the the last verse. 
You see the confrontation in the first part and the retort of Israel in the second part. Then the third part of the verse specifies what they've done wrong. Then in chapter 3, verses 1 to 6, we see how God is going to make things right. As usual, there's an internal structural markers here. In verse 3, there's behold twice, there's the familiar refrain, says the Lord of hosts in verse 3 and verse 6. But like last time, I think it's beneficial to focus on the content. With that approach, I propose the following outline. One question, two messengers, three outcomes. One question, two messengers, three outcomes. There's a one lingering question that concludes chapter 2. Where is the God of justice? The Lord responds and as his answer, he sends two messengers. One to prepare the way of another one, the other to bring justice to the world. That results in three outcomes. And I'll repeat these later. Offerings are revitalized. Offenders are judged. The offspring is preserved. And to put it another way, here are three ways to apply God's message for ourselves. One, trust the God of justice in an unjust world. That's chapter 2, verse 17. Trust the God of justice in an unjust world. 217. Two, promote God's message of repentance and faith. That's chapter 3, verse 1. Promote God's message of repentance and faith. 3.1. And three, anticipate God's judgment and fulfillment of promises. That's chapter 2. I'm chapter 3, verse 2 to 6. Anticipate God's judgment and fulfillment of promises. 3, 2 to 6. First, trust the God of justice in an unjust world. In Malachi, we've seen a wide range of God's emotions. In chapter 1, we saw him indignant and displeased. Last week, we read of his hatred of divorce. Today, we picture him worn out by the words of his people. The prophet directly pointed out this problem, yet they were ignorant, sensitive, and defensive. Just after being told they wearied the Lord with their words, here they are doing it again, continuing to run their mouths. They're slow to hear and swift to talk. Someone needed to remind them, God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. Yet the Lord patiently reminds them of how they wearied him. They've slandered his goodness and challenged his justice. If they need proof of his goodness, they only have to open up the scriptures. They see how God repeatedly condemned those who did evil in his sight. David tells us that Lord is not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness, nor does evil dwell with him. He orders the steps of the good man and delights in his way. Isaiah tells us that it is us, the woeful sinners, who call evil good and good evil, not God. 
Yet the Israelites say, he delights in the one who does evil. As for justice, their father Abraham trusted God, saying, Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? We, on the other hand, do injustice in judgment, showing partiality and favoritism. The psalmist speaks of a day when the Lord shall judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with his truth. The Israelites should have known all this. They should have trusted the God of justice in an unjust world. Instead, they burdened him with sins and wearied him with iniquities, especially their evil tongue. Now, to some degree, we may sympathize with the Israelites of Malachi's days. They were a humbled people under the rule of another nation. They were without a king, without fame and beauty, without the majestic temple of Solomon's days. That must have led them to ask, where is God? Have you ever felt sorry for yourself and asked the same question? Where is God? Where is the God of justice? When will you separate the wheat from the tares? We remember innocent believers suffering, and we ask why. We understand why the souls of the martyrs ask, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? To get more personal, maybe you asked, Lord, I've been a faithful, I've been persistent in intercession for others. Where is the God who answers prayers? Or maybe you read church history and asked yourself, Why do godly men die early while evil ones live long? Men of extraordinary potential, David Brainerd, Henry Martin, Robert Murray McShane, Jim Elliott, all cut off around age 30 in the prime of their lives. Meanwhile, maniacal tyrants like Mao Zedong, Idi Amin, Francisco Franco, Augusto Pinochet live to their senior years and die in peace. Where is the God of justice? We could go on and on with examples. There's so much we see in this fallen world. Now, I do think that we can ask questions to God without worrying him. And I think that the parable of the persistent widow in Luke 18, 1 to 7, is helpful. Just to review, a woman pesters a judge so much that though he is unjust... He grants her justice. No doubt the Lord is better than that unjust judge. We're told he will avenge his own elect who cry out day and night to him, though he bears long with them. But as his people seek justice, there's something Christ seeks in us. We read, when the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on the earth? There's the answer. Bring faith as you bring questions. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. And I think it's okay to have questions for God. It's not okay to lack faith in God. Take, for example, Asaph in Psalm 73. He was initially envious of the boastful when he saw the prosperity of the wicked. 
But the chapter ends with him saying, it is good for me to draw near to God. I have put my trust in the Lord God that I may declare all your works. Other godly men like Job, Jeremiah, and Habakkuk approached God's throne with questions, but they also brought their faith along. They all trusted the God of justice in an unjust world. And their faith trended upward because they looked forward. And there's a future tense to salvation, and that leads to the next application of God's message. Promote God's message of repentance and faith. When you read over chapter 3, verse 1, you can understand the rationale for the wanting a chapter division here. That behold at the beginning cuts like a hot knife through butter. Behold is the prophetic word that interrupts the wearisome words. It hushes up the doubters. The question of theodicy is met with the answer of theophany. The response to where is the God of justice is this. The Lord sends his messenger before he himself comes as the messenger. There are indeed two messengers here. First, there's someone referred to as my messenger who prepared a way for the Lord. Some think this is an autobiographical reference as the author's name Malachi means exactly that, my messenger. But we read in the Bible, as we go on, we find this verse must refer to John the Baptist. Even before his birth, his father knew of John's prophetic call to prepare his people for God. Jesus himself confirmed John as this first messenger. There are other key passages that explain John's ministry, such as Isaiah 40, verse 3. And here in the same book of Malachi, later in chapter 4, verse 5 to 6. But today we'll focus on John's role according to Malachi 3.1. So we should now ask, how did he prepare the way of the Lord with this message? Paul provides a succinct summary of John's work in Acts 19, verse 4. John indeed baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him who would come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. And we're going to focus on his message of repentance more than the corresponding symbol of baptism. And when it comes to John's ministry of repentance... I like to say it's about the awareness of sin and the bewareness of sin. John prepared the Israelites for Jesus by embodying the law, exposing the sin, heightening the knowledge of it, so that sin might be exceedingly sinful. That's creating awareness of sin. But he also stirred up urgency by speaking of everlasting fire kindled for the destruction of sinners. Axes laid at the root of the trees. That's telling them to beware of sin. In a sense, he foreshadowed Paul's principle that the law serves as our tutor to bring us to Christ. We can picture the relationship of repentance to faith as two sides of one coin. In order to promote God's message properly, you have to have both. 
Humor me for a moment when I say what God has joined together in Malachi 3.1. Let not man separate. He has joined together repentance and faith, judgment and mercy, law and grace in his grand plan of salvation. But John's message of repentance was preparatory, anticipatory. He's the opening act before the headliner. He's the best man in the wedding, but still not the groom himself. And if we listen carefully to the first messenger, if we pay attention to that voice in the wilderness, we'll see who comes next. John testified, He who comes after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. He's someone mightier and more worthy than John. And of course, we're talking about Jesus Christ. John could only say, believe in him, while Jesus could say, believe in me. We also observe the superiority of the second messenger through a careful look at the text. We do that by drawing a line to connect four dots that refer to the one and the same person. Start from point A, the God of justice at the end of chapter 2. Go to point B, me at the end of the first sentence in chapter 3, verse 1. Next, go to point C, the Lord whom you seek. This is parallel to point D, the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Not only that, the messenger of the covenant is greater because he owns the temple. That's why, as we'll see next, he has the authority to cleanse his priestly ministers, And Jesus gave us a preview as he drove out those who bought and sold in the temple. He had every right to reform what has become a den of robbers so that it will be a house of prayer. All that's recorded in the New Testament to confirm that Jesus is in fact the God of justice, Yahweh of hosts. He is the Lord whom Israel seeks, the messenger of the covenant, in whom they delight. And two more questions regarding chapter 3, verse 1. What is Christ's message? Didn't Christ already come to earth? I'll answer the second one first, as it makes more chronological sense to do so. So again, didn't Christ come to earth already? Yes, he came to earth about 2,000 years ago, and he's coming again. We don't know exactly when, but sometime later. We benefit from hindsight and know this well, but Malachi and his people didn't know in their time that Christ was going to have two advents. He came first to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. He's coming again for the day of the vengeance of our God. If you draw a timeline, we stand between these two appearances of Christ. God allowed this to give many a chance to be saved. Now let's talk about Christ's message. We we do expect some overlap between the first messenger and the second messenger. But the second messenger had something different to say. And it helps to zero in on the word covenant. While John the Baptist was the best representative and the culmination of the old covenant, Jesus is the messenger 
and mediator of the new covenant. Through the once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus, there's a better hope, a better covenant established on better promises. Through his shed blood, conscience is cleansed, iniquity is forgiven, and sins no longer remembered. And all of us are invited to benefit from this life-giving covenant that saves us from hell. If you're not a Christian and you're listening to this, I'll explain how towards the end. But for the believer, we should encourage each other to promote the message of repentance and faith. We need to do so boldly until Jesus returns. I was thinking this week about what it's like to talk with strangers and acquaintances and friends about the gospel. I thought, what if they start saying the kind of stuff we see in Malachi chapter 2, verse 17? How would you respond to scoffers and mockers? Would you start lecturing them, delve into philosophy, employ syllogisms, use the power of logic to destroy your opponent, exert your intellectual superiority over your foe? I'm not discounting apologetics as a helpful tool, But then, I thought again about that sudden transition from Malachi 2 to Malachi 3. What is the best answer to doubts and questions about God? Here's something every one of us can say. Our job is to answer in the following. Behold our God. He is coming to judge. Repent and believe before it's too late. It's not about matching intellect with intellect, rhetoric with rhetoric. Release the power of God for salvation. The gospel itself, the message of the cross. I think Paul was somehow, some way, channeling Malachi 3.1 when he met the Corinthians. He did not come to them with excellence of speech or of wisdom declaring the testimony of God. He determined to know nothing among them except Jesus Christ and him crucified. But you may say to Paul, you got the smarts, the education, the credentials, why not leverage them? He didn't leverage them because he had something much better. He had the message of God. Can you and I do the same? We hear those that sound like Malachi 2.17. We ought to respond in the manner of Malachi 3.1. I went out yesterday to the Columbia Mall to talk with some people and look for opportunities to evangelize. I felt somewhat alone and somewhat intimidated. But objectively speaking, I had no reason to feel sorry for myself. I had every reason for great confidence. Meditating on this passage helped I was also reminded of what Charles Spurgeon said about the power of the gospel message. I'll share it with, uh, share it with you for hopefully to encourage you. Quote, the word of God can take care of itself and will do so if we preach it and cease defending it. See you, that lion. They have caged him for his preservation, shut him up behind iron bars to secure him from his foes, 
See how a band of armed men have gathered together to protect the lion? What a clatter they make with their swords and spears. These mighty men are intent upon defending the lion. All fools and slow of heart. Open that door. Let the Lord of the forest come forth free. Who will dare to encounter him? What does he want with your guardian care? Let the pure gospel go forth in all its lion-like majesty, and it will soon clear its own way and ease itself of its adversaries. Release the lion and let the message do its work. The gospel is the greatest weapon we have. Even if we're persecuted to the point of chains, the word of God is not chained. Even if they take away our lives, they cannot snuff out the life-giving testimony. Let's open our mouth and declare, our God reigns. Behold, he is coming. And until that day, we must anticipate God's judgment and the fulfillment of promises. And so let's turn to this third and final application To review, we've seen one question about God's justice answered with the arrival of two messengers, John the Baptist and Jesus Christ. Now, once that day of vengeance arrives, we'll see three outcomes. Consider these subpoints: Offerings are revitalized, offenders are judged, and the offspring is preserved. First, as we see in verses 2 to 4, offerings are revitalized. We just saw in verse 1 that the Lord will suddenly come to his temple. And the reason he's there is to reform the worship practices of Israel. This assumes that in the end times, the stage is set. The nation of Israel will be on the verge of revival. The Jerusalem temple rebuilt. And the Levites are sealed and protected. The last time we talked about the Levites, it was back in chapter 2, verse 1 to 9. We saw them corrupting the covenant of their father, their descendants rebuked. They had animal waste on their faces. But in the future restored Israel, God will purify them with fire, cleanse them so that they may stand pure and bring righteous offerings. Such priestly ministry will take place in the millennial kingdom, in the Jerusalem temple. You can read all about his plan and design in Ezekiel 40 to 48. In that era, no longer will there be an abomination in Jerusalem, treachery in Judah, as we saw in Malachi 2.11. The offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasant to the Lord, as in his glory days of the past. So one more note about these revitalized offerings in the end times. These later acts of worship cannot be shadows of Christ looking forward to Jesus. They're different than the ones prescribed in the law of Moses. Instead, these gifts will be commemorative, looking back to Jesus and his finished work. In the current church age, we have the Lord suffer for that purpose. In the millennial kingdom, we'll have the Jerusalem temple service as a reminder. As the Levites are restored 
to their former glory, others will be put to shame. The second subpoint is that the offenders are judged. The progression of the list in verse 5 goes from the margins to the trenches of Israel. Sorcery was among the abominable practices of foreign nations. The adulterers, as you saw last time, abandoned, abandoned their Israelite wives to marry women from the foreign nations. Moving inward, perjurers were those who swear falsely in the court, bearing false witness against the neighbor. The greedy and the powerful most likely used deception to exploit the weaker ones in society, including subordinates, widows, orphans, and strangers. And as diverse as these vices are, these sinners are, all these offenders have one thing in common. They do not fear God. But when they're finally judged, the Lord will leave no doubt that he is the God of justice. Finally, as we look at verse 6, we see that not only do we anticipate God's judgment, we anticipate the fulfillment of his promises. In contrast to the flaky and uh, unfaithful Israelites, the Lord does not change. He does not go back on his promises to restore and finally save his people. That's why even with all their faults, the fiery day of the Lord will not consume the sons of Jacob. So then the offspring of Israel is preserved. Will you be preserved or consumed in that final day? I end by speaking to the unbeliever. There's a judgment in the future. Who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears? No one. God who judges all knows all. We'll give an account of every idle word we speak. We can't hide our slander of God and false testimonies We speak against our neighbors. He knows the adulteries and lusts of our hearts, the wrong we do to those weaker than us, the hurt we cause those different than us. We as sinful humans offend the Lord because there is no fear of God before our eyes. If you, the Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who can stand? But here's the good news. There's forgiveness with God that he may be feared. Go back to that twofold message of repent and believe. As John the Baptist preached, turn from your sins and self-righteousness. Turn to Christ who lived, died, and rose from the dead so that you may not be consumed on the day of the Lord. Do this before it's too late. Behold, he is coming. There's nothing we can do to earn salvation. It is by grace through faith, not of works. So until then, we walk by faith and eagerly wait in anticipation. Even if we're grieved by various trials, we rejoice. We learn this in 1 Peter 1, the genuineness of our faith being much more precious than gold that perishes. Though tested by fire, will be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And we have this promise that even if when we mess up as Christians, 
The Lord does not change. We are not consumed. We'll be saved from wrath, but yet so as through fire. Just as we sang earlier, when through fiery trials thy pathway shall lie, my grace all sufficient shall be thy supply. The flame shall not hurt thee. I only design thy dross to consume and thy gold to refine. As God's own people, we only have to face the refiner's fire, not hellfire. That's all because of the blood of the covenant shed by Jesus. Let's finish our time together gratefully remembering that sacrifice. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are not deaf to us. You are not absent from our lives. When we seek you, when we seek you with all our hearts, we can find you through your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you that you hear our questions and the response is not silence, but you gave us a message. You gave us time to respond to that message in repentance and faith. We pray that we would respond. And for those who have made that response many years ago, help us to not grow weary, but to tell others that same message. In some way, be like John the Baptist, asking people to believe in you, believe in your son. We ask for strength and boldness to do this. And we thank you for your sacrifice that made salvation possible. Pray all these things in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.